Welcome back to About South. This week, we're in Copenhagen, Denmark, talking to Martin Bone about the relationship between the U.S. South and the rest of the world. Martin shares insights from his first book, The Post-Southern Sense of Place in Contemporary Fiction, as well as his recent book, Where the New World Is, Literature about the U.S. South at Global Scales. As Martin explains, the idea of the South and globalism has a long history, and that history and how we understand it influences our discussions about immigration in the region today. I'm Gina Kaysen, and this is About South. So we are sitting here in Copenhagen, Denmark, with Martin Bone. Um, you're a relatively well-known Southern Studies scholar, I would say. You're also associate professor in the Department of English, German, and Romance Languages right. at the University of Copenhagen. And you've worked in Southern Studies. You've worked in Southern Studies as long as I've been in Southern Studies. Um, I'm not saying that you're that much older than me, but... You've always, since I've started, you've been a figure in the field. And I think during all or most of that time, I know you were at the University of Mississippi for a short time, but you've done a lot of your work on the U.S. South, not just from outside the U.S. South, but outside the U.S. and even more so outside of the Anglophone world. And on the one hand, I think I could say that makes you pretty unique, but I'm not really sure that it does. I think that maybe what some of our listeners would be surprised to know is there's quite a bit of interest in the U.S. South, outside the region and the country, and some of our other interviews have illuminated that, but also About South has, I consistently look to see where our listeners are in countries, and we have an international listener set, and I don't know who you are or where you are, but I'm always kind of charmed by that. Also, your neighbors um, are right there. We can hear them. Yes, speaking Danish. Speaking Danish. We are not lying that we're in Denmark. (laughs) So thank you so much for having us in your house to talk to us. I say us like there's someone here but me, but it's Uh, really not. Across the kitchen table. Right. Yeah. Somewhat, yeah, literally we are sitting at the kitchen table. Before we get into how you've thought about globalization, I think the people who listen to the podcast who are interested in Southern studies might know you most closely with the term post-Southern, which is something you talked about in your early work. I know people um, in the field or in graduate school, that term kind of gets thrown around in a way. And as the person who really started using it the most or you're most associated with it, What did you mean when you said post-Southern so many years ago? And how do you feel about the term now? Very good and very loaded questions, given that, yes, it's about 20 years ago that I was working with the term initially. And I would say, I guess it's gratifying if anyone believes that it's mostly associated with me. But uh, my own attempt to talk about, write about the post-Southern 
was at least partly a reaction to scholarship that already existed. I mean, the term first is utilised in 1980, I think, by Lewis P. Simpson. He's one of the sort of founding fathers of the field, I suppose. And he wrote an essay called something along the lines of the closure of history in a post-Southern America. And for Simpson, I think it's fair to say it was part of a decline narrative as much as anything else, a sense that a distinctive Southern identity was being lost, homogenization, uh, the sense that the South as a unique space, or as at least as a distinctive geography was being erased. So there's a kind of elegiac quality to the way that Simpson talked about it. But it got picked up as... Um, I think Michael Kraling calls it an enabling word to think about the impact of postmodernism as much as anything else on the idea of the South and Southern literature. So Kraling, the way Kraling wrote about it, and I think he is more so than me, I would say, has uh, been associated with the term. Uh, he picked it up to think about the impact of postmodernism and especially the idea of parody, that uh, emerging writers, and we're talking here about the 1980s, maybe the early 1990s, were implementing ideas of parody that have been theorized in postmodernism to get out from under the influence of especially of course William Faulkner. So Kraling and others, and I, I did some of this too, wrote about the likes of Barry Hanna as someone who deliberately invoked the legacy of Faulkner in order to undercut it and try to get out from under that influence. I, have, I wrote about post-Southernism in my MA thesis, and that was at the University of Nottingham in 1996-1997, uh, I think it was. It's almost a blur at this point. And I'd been given a, a novel to look at by one of my supervisors, Pete Messant, uh, by Barry Hanna. So I got into, interested in this. I'd already written my BA thesis on William Faulkner. Surprise, surprise. And at the same time, I began to get a little frustrated at the way in which the post-Southern especially to the degree it became associated with literary parody, had become somewhat detached from, I hesitate to say, the real South, but the material geography of that region we think of as the South. So I began in my PhD, and that's where I really began working on it and, and trying to reconceptualize the post-Southern. I began to try and reconnect the term to the material geography of the region, but especially as a word that I felt or a term or a, con a concept that could help think about the uh, socio-economic demographic material change of the South. Uh, so for example, in the end in my PhD and then in my first book, I had a subsection, um, three or four chapters on literary representations of Atlanta. And Atlanta as a city which had in many ways tried to model, boost, promote itself as a distinctive city that in some ways had broken from traditional ideas of the south of course especially as rural small town and so on uh, especially Atlanta beginning to promote itself by the 1970s as an international city so I sort of tried to connect this idea of the post-southern uh, post-southern to Atlanta as an international city but especially to think about for example in Atlanta the way in which writers had represented this sort of very rapid social and material change in the city's landscape and the way in which rural southerners already for example in Flannery O'Connor's fiction when they arrive in Atlanta there's that sense of disconnect of almost being not only in a different space but in a different time so so I really began thinking about the connection between the post-southern and also, the fetishization of place as an idea in Southern literary studies, especially, and so this 
conceit, I suppose, that the South and Southern literature has been characterised by a sense of place. It did end up appearing in the title of my first book, although that perhaps was not my own choice, that was the press's. Oh, good to know. (laughs) Oh, I think I say something about your work at some point about... Oh, I feel like I said something ungenerous about that one. Yeah, well, I think for the press, of course, there was the idea that uh, it would... It would be something that would hook more traditional Southern literary studies people, scholars, readers, uh, because we're used to thinking about the sense of place. But my point was, I suppose, that at the time, relatedly, postmodern theory was becoming very engaged with ideas of space, especially critics like Frederick Jameson, Edward Soger, David Harvey, also coming out of other disciplines, were really beginning to think about postmodern geographies, and especially the impact of capitalism and capitalist development. So I began really trying to both reconceptualize the post-Southern, to move away from parody, reconceptualize the idea of place by drawing on postmodern critical theory, uh, to, to think about how writers from Walker Percy through Richard Ford up through these writers who'd depicted a contemporary Atlanta, Tom Wolfe, uh, Tony K. Bambara in particular, how, how their literary texts allowed us to think about social, economic, geogra- geographic change and how their characters had responded to these processes. Right. And I mean, I think one of the things that's really, now that I'm thinking about this, that is kind of useful about the post-Southern is, is a bit of like, the wink of that once you start looking at the socioeconomic conditions they're the same socioeconomic conditions that undergird the development of the region right vast inequity in labor for sure com- yeah completely um racist policing i mean that's all there in this sort of in a space like atlanta if mm. it wants to say it's post-southern right you look at those writers and you're like oh no this is this is in the very fiber of the being, right? Absolutely. And one of the things that I was uh, careful to try and articulate in that first book and some of the things that I wrote later too was that to talk about the post-Southern isn't to foreground a sense of complete break from the regional past, right? We might tend to conventionally think of the post being there as a prefix. So we're moving away from traditional ideas of the South or ideas of the Southern, but especially a writer like Tony Kebambara in her posthumous novel that Toni Morrison edited for publication, came out in 1999, so actually while I was writing the thesis, and also my, my, my chapter on Tom Wolfe, I mean, the novel came out as I was writing the thesis, so it seemed in that way, I guess, timely, or maybe just it was a happy coincidence, but Bambara, especially in that novel, which was about the Atlanta child murders, to be reductive, I mean, one of the things that you really see is the insistence on the way in which there's a disconnect between the promotion of Atlanta as an international city, right, aiming to um, attract international corporations, finance capital, and the ongoing reality of racial segregation and displacement of African Americans, which certainly Atlanta was characterized by right through the civil rights period, right? The idea of Atlanta as the city too busy to hate was happening at the same time that urban renewal was significantly displacing African-American residents uh, to other parts of the city. So Bambara, I think, is very interested in stressing that, yes, Atlanta uh, is a city that's that had under undergone rapid change and had been promoted as doing so. But for African-Americans, there are significant continuities in the history of racial segregation, displacement. Uh, The problems that many black Southerners, not only in a city like Atlanta, were familiar with, certainly. 
And how does thinking about, how did thinking about the post-Southern and the way you zoom in and look at Atlanta, how did that help you start to take this more, maybe for lack of a better word, but kind of this global turn in your work that, how did that lead you to these questions about Southern literature and Southern studies in this global framework? Because what you've turned to, I mean, I think a lot of people have thought like, wow, that's really ambitious. You're, you're trying to show some kind of global reach or continuity or network here. So how did that post-Southern help you get to this other network question? Yeah, that's a good question. I do think there was a fairly organic development, actually, from the uh, the focus on Atlanta and literary representations of Atlanta, especially the, the Tom Wolfe novel, one of the central strands of the book, and I wouldn't make great claims for its aesthetic importance, but Wolfe, as was notorious, he was often aiming to gauge this sense of social economic, cultural change, but there's a whole strand in there about uh, Southeast Asian immigrants in Atlanta, especially in and around areas of the so-called Chambodia, the Chambly area of Atlanta. So thinking about that, thinking about um, the representation of Atlanta in these writers' works as a kind of global capital of capital, but also a city that was becoming international in a different way, demographically, through immigration, legal or illegal, that these writers were beginning to think about that. So... My epilogue to the first book, actually, I think the subtitle was something like um, Against the Agrarian Grain, Taking the Transnational Turn, right? So I was still, uh, uh, at the time, I suppose, also grappling with the agrarians, which I sort of regret would kept them going for longer than perhaps they deserve, because we're still arguing with them at the time. Uh, but I was also trying to engage with the transnational turn in American studies more broadly. I mean, my training, especially at Nottingham, came out of transnational American studies. So I was really interested in trying to challenge those conventional ideas, not only that the South is distinctive or unique within the US nation, but that there are these various ways in which, whether it's in the present and in contemporary fiction or in earlier times and in earlier writing, we might think about the South as being much more connected globally than those conventional ideas would allow. There is as much longer history of the South's relationship to globalization. I think it's the imperial historian A.G. Hopkins who talks about the period between 1600 and 1800 as sort of proto-globalization. And of course, talking about labor, one of the ways in which the South was profoundly, or what we now know as the South, was profoundly involved in that process of proto-globalization is the slave trade. So one of the things I think that's particularly interesting to look at now, and this is again where you could say that sort of stressing the continuities in the post-Southern, right? Trying to think um, about the continuities between forms of labor exploitation today and the ways in which um, they may echo in almost uncanny fashion forms of labor exploitation earlier in Southern history or in actually in global or transatlantic history. One of the things that your work does, and I'd love to hear you talk more about that, is what does paying attention to globalization in addition to labor help us see about the U.S. South? Mm. So why does it help thinking about the South or help Southern studies to take this global framework? Not saying everyone has to do work in the same way, but what does this offer that I, I would say has been maybe missing in a lot? Of yeah. Southern studies. Yeah. I mean, I do think, of course, now we've got to a point where there are some who feel that uh, the transnational or the global turn, or at least the hemispheric turn in Southern studies, a lot of scholars have worked on the South in relation to the Caribbean, 
or Southern writing in relation to Latin American or Caribbean writing. Now, this turn has gone too far, right? But I, I, I try to insist in this book, perhaps uh, self-interestedly, that there's still much to be done. I mean, I do think it is, one aspect of this is actually to think about globalization not simply as a contemporary phenomenon. I mean, certainly the literary text that I focus on, really it runs from roughly the late 1920s up to the 2010s, the last few years. But there is this much longer history. If we're talking about the impact of globalization, there are ways in which it seems a lot of writers are interested in connecting and comparing the history of exploitation, whether it's slavery, convict labor, and the exploitation of immigrant labor in the present. There is, seems to be a particular interest in that. And scholars too, I think in the last 10 years, especially in the New Southern Studies, there has been this increasing turn towards a sort of more materialist approach. I mean, scholars like Leanne Duck and Houston Baker, Tara McPherson have all written about how New Southern Studies or Southern Studies just more generally needs to take this materialist turn. So I think thinking about the South in these global economic networks is really important, but also thinking certainly about the impact of immigration. Uh, I think on one hand, yes, we can make the connection back to that earlier period. But I, I do sort of allow for the what I think is an unavoidable reality that r roughly between the 1830s and up through the 1950s, the South does turn inwards, right? That the defense of slavery, the ongoing oppressive labor structures, it doesn't make the South particularly appealing to immigrants, voluntary immigrants, that is. So it's really after the Hart-Seller Act, 1965, right, that uh, and subsequent streams of immigration from various parts of the world uh, during and after the 1970s into the 80s, that we really see the region being impacted by these new demographic turns, these new demographic movements, and yet at the same time, maybe it does echo that earlier period in which the South was really immersed in this kind of proto-globalization, as I called it earlier. I think the shorthand in the States is that, well, as the U.S. South for the first time sees this massive immigration, and it's yeah. like, well, okay, well, I think we can fairly say that is certainly not the first time, yes. maybe under current definitions of what immigration mm. is, but not under vastly different types of settlers and enslaved peoples. I mean, this has been happening. Yeah, and I mean, and of course, I'm making a, a general point here that between roughly the 1830s up through 1960s, clearly the South was not a particularly attractive region. What I also do in this book is is look to some degree a little bit more again at the transatlantic, Black Atlantic forms of immigration and the impact that's had on the South, but also move into the sort of Trans-Pacific. In fact, I ended up with a chapter in the book, which initially I thought would just be part of my epilogue, and then it sort of expanded and expanded into a chapter where I look at narratives of Asian immigration into the region. Uh, and the way in which some of those texts riff very self-consciously and even parodically on conventional ideas of the South, a book like Monique Truong's Bitter in the Mouth, but others where for the immigrants themselves and also the way geographies are conceptualized in these novels, the South as a category is really troubled to the point where perhaps it's not relevant at all, which does raise questions for to what degree is this uh, Southern studies at all? I mean, this reminds one of Leanne Duck's idea of maybe what we're doing now, for some of us at least, is Southern studies without the South as a fixed idea or a fixed concept or a fixed geography.
you know, I think people sometimes think of it in terms globalization in terms of the social sciences, right? Yes. Why literature for mm. you? Like, what does yeah. that offer? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think again, the and it's flagged in the title of my book. It's called "Where the World Is: The U.S. South at Global Scales." And the one review that I've seen so far did stress immigration would would or migration should perhaps have been in the title. I wouldn't even necessarily disagree with that, but. I did end up including scale as a as a concept in the title because um, it's a term or a, an idea that really comes out of human geography. People like Neil Smith talking about scale uh, in human geography and talking about the role of capitalism actually in, in defining various scales in which people experience their lives. And I felt that it was a, a sort of useful term because... One can think about it in literary terms, too. The ability of the novel, for example, to, to do what Neil Smith as a geographer would call jump scales, that we can move from thinking about, in a literary text, the larger economic demographic shifts that are happening at a global scale. But we can also move through, often, especially perhaps through first-person narratives, to the individual, the familial, the very local macro sorry micro scale at which these characters these narrators are experiencing immigration or globalization and i've been thinking about it a little bit more actually again in in the last few weeks in in teaching some of the novels that i've written about and being quite struck by how often they are first person narratives and i think one danger of that of course is that we as readers tend to think this is more authentic this is how it really is, rather than recognising it's fiction. But uh, I think it would be fair to say, too, that my students also have a kind of more affective, a more sort of, I guess you could say, emotional or, or sensitivity. There's a response that they have to those kinds of narratives and the way it can convey the different scales of migration or the experience of moving to a region called the south that they experience it at the personal level they experience it at the familial level of course in some ways this is a familiar conceit of literary studies or the humanities more generally that through fiction or through narrative uh, these kind of experiences that otherwise seems very statistical very dry or very abstract or just too huge to otherwise conceive of and globalization and uh, would certainly be part of that that they can be conveyed uh, but I still think of course it's a valuable one I think certainly one can see and this is where it's interesting of course right to see it in practice in the classroom that students do have that kind of response that yes they're reading it as a text that's part of this upper level or postgraduate course but they're having an effective response too so I think it it, it, it really does have that kind of value but Especially, as I said earlier, this idea that fiction can jump scales. For Neil Smith, it's really important as a human geographer to think about the different scales on which capitalism is operating, for example. And a, 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 a migrant narrative can really offer that, jumping scales. I don't just mean in terms of moving back and forth between different geographies or different countries, but moving from the scale of the narrator's individual experience of being a refugee or being an immigrant or what is southernness or what is being in Virginia to this narrator, but also the, the scales of being part of a larger community, being part of a state perhaps as a scale, feeling maybe more from North Carolina, from Virginia than you do southern. Uh, to these larger sort of transnational scales where the, the immigrant experience is also defining your identity as well.
indeed, I think there are ways that people invested in the U.S. South thinking about globalization can help in these ways. Yeah. But I wonder, why does anyone... I sometimes wonder why does anyone outside the U.S. South, and more or less, like, and sometimes why does anyone outside the United States, like, why should they like give a damn about the South? Yeah. And that's not a loaded question for you to then tell me this is why. Right. I, I'm very genuine in that when I look at our international listeners, even for this podcast, I just think, wow, so like, why does anyone care mm. about this, yeah. or why should they care? And maybe I should have a better pitch. Right. But I, yeah. sometimes I don't know. It's kind yeah. of amazing to me that anyone would think about mm. the South ever. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I mean, my answer inevitably has something to do with my academic training. I mean, obviously, to some degree, growing up in Britain, um, when I did, I mean, I was born in 1974, there's exposure to American culture more generally. And I think you get a reasonable awareness that certain forms of music, perhaps, for example, have uh, particular origins in certain areas of the South. But my training, as I mentioned earlier, is in American studies. And I do think one aspect that uh, may differentiate even from the United States is the South for a long time has been at the center of British American studies. I think that um, there is there has always been a recognition and I've been away for a few years now, so I'm not entirely sure if it's still the case, but there was always a recognition that one could not understand the United States without thinking about the South as a central rather than an exceptional or a distinctive region, right? Uh, I know today certainly there's ongoing frustration, right, that among Southern, Southern Studies scholars that the South is seen as marginal to cutting-edge American studies. But the, the role of slavery, the importance of literature from the South, I think this was very much ingrained, certainly, in the training I had, even if I didn't take courses that were specifically focused on the U.S. South. In fact, I, didn't, I, I really got interested in terms of my career in, in working on Southern literature when I was at the University of Massachusetts. I was there as a study abroad student. I took a seminar on William Faulkner. I mean, the familiar gateway drug, right, for many people interested in the South and Southern literature. But at the same time, I, I, I do think in British American studies, also because some of the scholars who were there, Americans and, and British scholars, Richard Gordon, Richard King, Richard Gray, the, the Richard the Threes, as I think we used to call them when we were graduate students, and people coming through subsequently like Sharon Monteith, the name Youssef, these are people who... Uh, they're not teaching necessarily the South as Southern Studies, right? We're often teaching in English departments or American Studies departments and situating the South, certainly nationally, in terms of a national understanding of the United States. But I think at the same time, it's uh, it would be disingenuous not to acknowledge that I think for many people perhaps in Europe, there can sometimes be a degree of there's exotic, right, in terms of the initial hook, uh, thinking about New Orleans as, as, as seemingly at least this distinctive location with this fascinating mixed culture. Uh, I've certainly seen in the past, you know, I think Fred Hobson once wrote about, you know, in the 1950s and 1960s for an earlier generation in Britain, the United States more generally, but perhaps especially the South, seemed fascinating and exotic because of the depriva deprivation that British people were going through in the wake of World War Two and the fallout from World War Two, and then of course the rise of rock and roll and so on and so forth, which has its heavy associations with the South. So I think there's there's at least a couple of answers there, right? There's the academic one in terms of my own training, but 
the ways in which uh, certain ideas of Southern culture are received and understood that are more popular and perhaps at times more exotic. I mean, I have to say my first encounter with Southern culture, and I would never have understood it as such, was as an infant school kid, Dukes of Hazard, right? When I was six years old or so, and I remember writing... Wait, Dukes of Hazard aired in the UK? Yeah, so it was on the BBC, and I remember in my... Dukes of Hazard was on the BBC? <laughs> it was on the BBC. I, at least I think it was the BBC. I'm sure we could go away and double check. But I remember as a five or six-year-old at infant school in my notebook doodling the General Lee and making, like, little... My own little advertisements for the Dukes of Hazard being on Saturday at 5.30pm on BBC One or whatever it was. So, of course, you're not thinking of it at that age as being Southern culture. But it does make me wonder what kind of images of Southern culture were being conveyed to people who are a bit older than I was at that point. And that, that's, that's what would come across, right? I mean, obviously, in many ways, very stereotypically so. But there are these different hooks, and that may be shared by some of your listeners, too, in why are they interested in learning more about the South, right? Some of us are coming from an academic angle, and then there are others whose, whose initial exposure or hook may be very different in terms of the popular cultural circulations of the South. I struggle sometimes when I work with students and we talk about the myth of Southern exceptionalism and that, of course, you know, the way the South generates the capital for the entire country from enslavement. Fact. There's always this moment where I think because I'm someone who grew up in the South, because people hear me talk, right? And I, depending upon who you ask, I sound like I'm from the South. Right. It can sound, when it comes out of my mouth, like a bit like defensivism. That's not a word. Defensiveness. Right. Because it, it's like, oh, well, everyone was bad. Therefore, it wasn't just us. And I never mean it in a way to excuse yeah. the South. Yeah. Right? In case any listener is confused. Like, no one should be trying to take down the myth of Southern exceptionalism to then somehow make it okay. Yeah. And so I wonder if it's a little bit like with your students here in Denmark, the problem is, is when we never take that exceptionalism and apply it to our own mythology, right? Sure. I, yeah. I mean, that must be it. I mean, I, this is recognizable too. I mean, this is something that we need to talk about then in classes. It's not to then excuse the South by saying that the, you know, the rest of the nation is also implicated in these structures of racism or the legacies of slavery or slavery itself for that matter. Um, and students, you know, there are those moments where students raise those points themselves, right? That, well, you know, maybe we do need to then retain an awareness that the South had a particular role in slavery or the, the practices of Jim Crow. But as I said earlier, I mean, I think they, they are quite receptive to, for better or worse, the idea that the myth of Southern exceptionalism is problematic precisely because they are also aware, also in their everyday experiences of the media, and I think perhaps especially in the last few years with how many of the incidences of police brutality have taken place outside the South, for example, right? Uh, in terms of African Americans being subjected to that brutality. They're quite receptive to the idea that the, the nation is the problem and uh, and thereby the myth of southern exceptionalism is 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 itself a myth that is problematic
Thank you for listening this week. And thank you for joining us this past month as we've traveled to the UK and Denmark to talk to Southern Studies scholars working abroad. This week, we'd also like to thank Gavin Lennon, Brian Ward, and Martin Bone for being such wonderful hosts on our abroad travels, bringing you these episodes. We had a great time getting to know them and their work, and we look forward to seeing them again in the future. About South is brought to you from the historic West End of Atlanta, Georgia. Kelly Vines and Ajwa Danso are my co-producers, and Jessica Parker is an assistant producer. Our music is by Brian Horton. You can find his music at brianhorton.com. You can find us at aboutsouthpodcast.com, and you can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you like the show, we encourage you to subscribe and rate it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you really like the show, you can be a supporter on our Patreon or go to our website to make a one-time contribution. We're off next week, but we'll be back on August 9th with a special episode about the recent threats to reproductive rights and justice across the Southeast. It's an incredibly important episode, and you don't want to miss it. Until then, take care.